Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 32 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live stream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode, my guest is a singer-songwriter who, much like Paul Weller, has a unique ability to tell stories through powerful lyrics that live in our hearts and minds. I'm talking up the junction, call for cats, hourglass, slap and tickle, labelled with love, some fantastic place I could go on forever. The amazing Chris Difford joins me for episode 32, legendary lyricist and all-round musical legend, founding member of the fabulous band Squeeze with Glenn Tilbrook. Now, I can't recommend his autobiography enough, too. So many great stories within, all beautifully told, as you'd expect. So let's get into it. Chris Difford, thanks for joining me. It's good to be here. Squeeze are, are such a brilliant band. I, I've seen you live so many times. I, I love you guys. If there were a series two, it, it would be Squeeze. It would be Desperately Seeking Squeeze, I have to say. You guys are great. So many elements of your story to me seem to either run parallel to Paul Weller's, because you have so much in common around the timings of, of, of things, but also your paths collide and cross in some really beautiful ways at times too. So, so we'll get into it, shall we? Sure, go ahead, fire ahead. Now, I'm going to kick off with 1972, because this is the year that the jam formed, and Paul Weller got together with um, Steve Brooks at that time. But it's also, from my understanding, the time that you started your first band as well. Was it Porky's Falling Spikes? Was that right? Yeah, I had no idea Paul was ahead of the game at that point. Um, Yeah, I had Porky's Falling Spikes, but it was more like a score band. It wasn't really uh, anything other than just a a bunch of kids making a bit of noise and (laughs) opposing a bit and smoking fags it wasn't really i don't think we had any intentions of being on top of the pops (laughs) just to have some fun but i think that was the same thing because this was at shearwater school for paul so a similar thing as you go through that those early days of the squeeze the timings is is almost exactly the same as the jam but initially for you you just wanted to be david bowie in the beginning was that right 
I went to see him and um, I was really knocked out with his lyrics and by his presence. I never wanted to be like him. I could only be like myself, really. But lyrically, it was something that inspired me and I wanted to chase that. But then, you know, I was into the small faces and the who and lyrically they weren't the same, but they were still inspirational from a point of view of they were young lads in a band. And that was the most important thing, young lads in a band, which, you know, all these years later, I still love the idea of and that band as we get into squeeze similarly to the jam just has so much energy it just seems so much fun in in the sense that it was i mean often people on this podcast have talked about the jam and the and the style council being like a youth club it was a very very young band and you met glenn in 1973 and this, this story of you getting to know each other that's in your autobiography this courtship between the two of you is is really lovely because in the first year you wrote like 137 songs together <laughs> We did, but they weren't all very, you know, they weren't all great. Um, you know, they were just songs. And um, the whole point of the union of us coming together was to write and to, to sort of mine ideas um, to see where it would lead. You know, I don't think, it, speaking from my point of view, I don't think I ever thought that we'd be here all these years later. I thought that we'd maybe rattle some cages and then move on. But it seemed like our relationship just kind of grew. So part of this podcast is me talking about the fact that 10 years ago, I gave up my life as a radio presenter without being able to interview Paul. I didn't get to, oh, that was one big regret, but I did get to chat to Glenn and I chatted to Glenn probably around the time that um, Ridiculous came out. And I owe you an apology because I hadn't realised how you divvied up the work, if you like, in a way that you were the guy who came up with the words and Glenn was the chap who came up with the music. And this beautiful collaboration between the two of you worked so well because I was there complimenting him on the words that had really connected with me and the lyrics. that worked. And everyone, he was like, going, oh, no, that was Chris. That was Chris. <laughs> How did you decide that those were the, your strengths as a poet, essentially, and somebody able to write great lyrics for songs? Uh, well, Glenn was just constantly playing guitar and piano and he was more musically minded and I was constantly sharpening pencils and writing down words. So it became natural, very apparent that that was going to be how we were going to divvy, divvy things up. It's it's kind of um, an unspoken coming together, really. We just sort of fell into place. I don't think there was a lot of time put into figuring out what who would do what. It just became apparent. The timings of your first album was just very shortly after In the City and Modern World. How much were you into the jam and how much did, uh, was that a part of your world? To be honest, I don't think I really paid much attention to what was going on outside of my own world. The first time I remember the jam was when they supported Squeeze at the Marquee a couple of times and their energy and their assault on stage was just genius it was like seeing the who or the small faces it was and i it was a band that i wanted to be in i thought well if, if they ever got room i'd be in being them in a you know nano but um and i met their dad and he was a lovely guy and i have to say the whole family the weller family are, are gracious people i've learned that over the years i have a great respect for paul i think he's the way that he devotes himself to being Paul Weller is extraordinary. You know, even during the lockdown, I realised that he's just recorded yet another album. Uh, and why not? I mean, that's who he is. He's Paul Weller. He's got his own place. He needs to fill space in his head and in his heart. And that's that's what he does. 
so much of um, the links that I thought to talk about as well, this power of lyrics and the power of the word in your songs, because it, it means something. Not only do you write great songs, but you run like, songwriting retreats. And I've always looked at these and thought, oh, I'd love to have some kind of ounce of talent to be able to join a, a five-day retreat with you to, to learn how to write songs or to work on my craft. You know, um, but I've got no, no talent in that space whatsoever. But the actual words in your songs are really important, aren't they? Well, as a lyricist, yeah, it's everything for me. And that's what I concentrate on. And that's what keeps bringing me back to the shed. You know, that's kind of what I do. I write lyrics for whoever is looking for them within reason. I don't really write for a lot of people, but when I get asked, I kind of think about it and I generally accept if I think it's going to be a very good project. And in fact, Paul did ask me to write for him once and I went to Solid Bond uh, Studios and he gave me, we sat around for a bit, for a couple of hours and he played me a couple of demos and songs that he had on on the boil. And then he gave me a cassette of like maybe six songs. And he said, um, if you come up with anything, you know, let me know. He was very sort of open about it. And I went away with the cassette and I listened to it. And uh, I think I did come up with some ideas and I sent them to him, um, but we didn't really expand upon it. I think I was a little bit too floral for him at the time. Wow. When was that? What period would that have been? Solo or, or Style Council? Or, can you remember? Uh, it would have been after the jam, but before the Style Council around that time. Wow, God. Well, it's, when, it's when he only had solid bond for a while, you know. Right. And it fascinates me how some of these songs can some come so easy to you both. So Up the Junction was a song that you wrote in one sitting. Paul talks about that's entertainment as something he just wrote in 10 minutes. And you get mm. this idea that sometimes the songs write themselves. Presumably other things take like a really painful to get through. No. If they're if they're of any use, if they're any good, then they that they come in five or ten minutes. Wow. If they're rubbish, then you, it means you got to keep going back and welding them together, and then they don't look very good. So I'm with Paul really. If I've got an idea and it works, then it works. If not, you just scrap it and don't bother, or or it becomes a note in a notebook that you might return to. Yeah, some I mean, I'm constantly throwing stuff away because I do, I think, well, why should I waste my time on this if it doesn't really jump out of the box? So you know, if I'm writing and something completes itself within five, ten minutes, then I normally know it's going to be all right. Wow. And when you come up with a killer lyric, so there was a line that, um, I mean, there's so many lines, but there's one particular line that always stands out to me, which is a song that probably not many people talk to you about, which is a song called Wicked and Cruel. And there's oh, this yeah. line, where, which is, if I come back as her, would I love me? And it's, it's honestly just a brilliant, brilliant line. And it probably doesn't, like a throwaway line maybe for you, but for some reason that, that connected. When you come up with those lines, do you, do you write something and then go, bloody hell, that's brilliant, and do a little jog around the garden or have an <laughs> extra cup of tea? <laughs> well, well, thanks for bringing that, that song up. It is a brilliant song for all different manner of reasons not least Glenn's vocal on it is extraordinary but you know lyrics like that I, I, it takes me years to fathom out where they come from I, I don't I don't really jog around the garden very much uh, <laughs> particularly I'm you know I'm not looking for for that kind of uh, self-satisfaction I think that I think I'm just very lucky I suppose to be blessed with the uh with the, with the imagination that my mum and dad gave me to be able to sit and write songs. You know, it's, some people try and educate songwriting by supposedly teaching it, which you can't do, I don't believe. It's more of an emotional belonging. 
And so many of the lyrics come from your heart, from reading your autobiography as well. I, I, it helps to get more of an understanding of that. But you sense that always just in hearing the song in the first place, but as you, you dig a bit deeper. And that seems to be the same for Paul as well. You, you, I mean, you're writing, it's not like you're writing to create a top 40, top 10 hit, big selling single. I don't know if that's ever been the case. It's it's more that you're digging into your, your own psyche and your own belief of what you want to just get out there, I'm guessing. Yeah, I don't, I don't think commercially at all. Um, we, I don't think we ever have done. I mean, yes, it's great to have hits. It's great to have radio play, but I don't bother about it. If we don't make the Radio 2 playlist, which is where we are these days, um, it doesn't bother, bother me. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. I think the early success that we had is still a meal that I'm consuming. So it's kind of, um, it's an ongoing appreciation of, uh, of the simple things in life, which music is a simple thing. When the band was at its height in terms of the late 70s, 80s, and that first um, incarnation, and you were smashing out single after single that was doing incredibly well. So Up the Junction, Tempted, Hourglass, those those kind of songs that are still part of your set list today. And we'll talk about the new stuff in a sec too. The live experience seems like a... I don't know. It seems a terrifying one from your point of view to a certain extent, but these crowds were massive when you're touring all over the world, uh, the US particularly. I mean, you've got bands, I mean, some great bands supporting you. You mentioned the jam at one point, but the specials, REM, Die Straits, bands like that. I'm trying to explain to people how big this was. How much of that was fun versus actually having to write the next hit to be able to sell it, continue to sell out those tours and stuff? Well, I think if you become a bus driver, you know that you've got to go from one end of the route to the other and then you've got to start all over again. And that's really what being in a band is like. You you, you start off writing the songs, you rehearse them, record them, go out on the road. And then when you, when you tire it out, you start again. As it got bigger and bigger over the years... It was consuming and it was wonderful, I have to say. Those larger audiences were just as amazing as the audiences we had at the Marquee Club, but in a different kind of way. Today, we still play to large audiences, particularly in America. I'm very grateful for the fact that our music has stayed the test of time. And also, I'm very pleased that, for instance, Paul is now embracing america and touring there more and more often because his music is beginning or has begun to be more accepted there and i know for a long time we were out on tour and i used to think why isn't paul over here you know it's kind of like the perfect place for him i think we've done over 70 tours of america and it just keeps growing which is a wonderful thing i don't know what we're going to be doing about it in the next 12 months but let's hope we can go back i mentioned the parallels with paul and the jam squeeze Really, you split at the height of your fame in that first part, 1983. Paul disbanded the jam tail end of 1982. And that was very much a Paul decision. And the rest of the band had to you know, live with it. For Squeeze, it was more of a understanding between the two of you that at that point it had, it had run its course or it was time for a break and do something different. Would that be right? Yeah, we were knackered. And you know, I think it was good just to... to to sit down and have a rest from being squeezed. Uh, we did it in a haphazard kind of way. Um, you know, unlike Paul, I think you get to a point where, okay, you know each other inside out. You've written all your best stuff that you could possibly do in that period of time. There are different egos at play within the band, possibly. You know, you just need some fresh air around you, really. You can't just keep carrying on. It exhausts you. Um, so looking back, I'm glad that we did it. And... Um, you know, we've we've broken up and got back together three times, I think now. So we're we're getting very good at it. 
<laughs> there were one of the times when I my radio career was taking off and, and I really got into you guys and was seeing you live. It was around the, I guess, 93. Yeah, so some fantastic place, I'm guessing would have been around 93. And Ridiculous and and those albums, which I, I loved. I thought, and you were so, I mean, still are so bloody good live. There's clearly a, re- a relationship there that you can't, as much as you know, circumstances might make this not work all the time, you can't kind of break it off completely. You're always coming, bouncing back to each other because you make such great songs together and make a great, it just works, doesn't it? It does work. Um, really what's happened in the last year because of the pandemic, it's given us a time to kind of break up without breaking up. You know, we've managed to stand still and or sit still and take on board what we need to do. You know, we need to, we need to put the car, you know, on blocks and just sort of take it all apart and oil it and put it back together again. And I think that's, that's what we will be doing in the next three or four months. I think there's one song as well. Grouch of the day. I used to use as a radio jingle on my breakfast show and get people to ring in on who their grouch of the day was, (laughs) which is lovely. Um, But 2000 Paul makes um, heliocentric or heliocentric. And I'd like to know how you pronounce it because it's named after your studio or your studio from them, wasn't it? Heliocentric. Yeah, yeah. He came down with his team to record for a month, I think it was. And uh, it was chaos, but it was great <laughs> fun. Um, Why chaos? <laughs> well, it was chaos in a good way. You know, like when people turn up at your house and, you know, they sort of plug in and start playing and they don't you know we because we have a family we had a family growing up there we we said to them look you know you can't really record after 10 o'clock at night because we need to get the kids to bed and all that stuff but they didn't hear that so quite frequently they'd be recording till like three or four in the morning which is absolutely fine they booked the place out um but we had some very funny times um and it was lovely to have them all there i think steve white was there yeah, Damon Minchella mentioned the fact that they set your bedroom alight. Well, <laughs> they did. And because we live in a small village, um, the fire brigade came, but it was like four blokes who were also in bed who were being called to the fire. You know, it was like Trumpton or something. <laughs> they, they came flying down the drive in a fire engine just to find like five stoned guys standing out in a field. Oh, amazing. <laughs> There's another connection, which is um, I hadn't twigged until I, until I read your biography as well, which was, you know, there's so much of it that charts your relationship with Glenn and, and that and the drink and the drugs. And people should read it if only for the Brian Ferry stories, which are just, <laughs> just unbelievable. But Sir Elton John is another link to Paul Weller. And I'm not sure if you can guess where I'm going with this off the top of your head. The Stripes, which was yeah. a, a band that came, you managed and came via Sir Elton. Is that right? And we brought the boys down to Paul's studio, Black Barn, and we recorded down there. Um, and um, Josh, the guitar player, still plays occasionally with Paul. I think they still get on pretty pretty well. And it was amazing to have him around. And he was very um, cautious around them, like a father. And I thought that was a very beautiful thing. You know, like... Um, he said, he said to me, do you mind if I drink in front of the band? And I said, why would I bother about, about that? He said, because they're so young. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, they're in a rock and roll band. I think they'll get to learn about drinking, you know. So, <laughs> you 
you know, but it was very courteous of him to ask. Yeah, and you mentioned Josh. He's, I mean, God, what a talent he is. In, incredible. And I know he's now solo, but I saw them support Paul as well. And they were brilliant live. When you were managing them, how did that come about in terms of them supporting Paul and stuff? Was that through, was that before the Black Palm recording or? Um, yeah, I can't remember the connection other than they were big Weller fans. And, um, you know, I just joined the dots and made some phone calls. And the next thing I knew, we were, he was, he was kind enough to call me and say, look, if they want some studio time for free, it's empty next week. Why don't they come down and use it? So I said, that's really kind. So the, so the band flew in from Dublin and, and we went straight down there, stayed at the house, recorded free for a week, which was really nice with his engineer. And, um, Paul popped in every now and again to see what was going on. Wow, cool. And Steve Craddock's another one that I wanted to mention because you co-wrote with him for Travel Wild, Travel Free, his album. And there was a track called 10,000 Times, which you collaborated on. How did that come about? Really simply, he just emailed me and asked me if I'd write a lyric for him. And and I said, well, God, yeah, I'd love to. You know, I'm a massive fan. What do you want to talk about? And he, he, he got very mystical and I thought oh god this is going a bit weird um and then he sent me the track and it was very mystical and and in the end it all came together very very well so <laughs> I mean obviously you're a bit you're a huge fan of music as well and as Paul's career has gone you know through the years from the style council to the solo years and we're talking in the same way as we're talking about squeeze of a 40-year legacy of back catalogue I guess there's two questions on that one around Paul's new material and have you followed that journey and how into that have you been and what have you loved and then secondly from a squeeze point of view when you get back on the road how do you create a set list from this when you're still doing new albums? Because you've got you know, Cradle to the Grave, the knowledge which came out a few years back. Obviously, people want to hear the big hits, which is the same with Paul. But it must be really hard coming up with a set list that works to please everybody, yourselves, to play the new material, fans yeah. who also want to hear the back catalogue and stuff. Yeah, it is tricky. Um, we always manage to make the set list the right one for the right tour. So I, I think we're okay with that stuff. We've got so much to choose from. You know, we haven't written anything recently, but I'm sure we will sometime in the future. And as for Paul's career, I have to say that hats off. I admire what he does. Um, I think his songwriting has just got stronger and stronger. His vocal performances have got amazing. And even when he does like the new stuff that I've just listened to, I think he's pushing a boundary for him himself is constantly challenging himself which i think is a wonderful thing there was a song that he brought out some years ago and i can never remember the title of it and i think he was questioning his uh, alcoholism and it was a really beautiful song and it's it always bothers me i can't remember the title of it but um it just shows how in touch he is with his with his feelings as well the drinking has come up a lot on the podcast in terms of the wild days of the jam, the style council, the solar years, and then Paul knocking on the head. And then he's talked about how that's enabled him now to be much freer and to, you know, to be more present in terms of gigs and things. And I didn't want to touch on this too much, but I know obviously you've had the problems with alcoholism and things like that. Have you found that in, in recent years when you seem to have come through that and, and be in a better place that actually you're, you're more present yourself and you can understand that way of thinking from his point of view too? Most definitely. I think um, I don't, I haven't sort of turned to the wacky backy or anything like that. I've kind of completely squeaky. So um, it's taken me a long time to really appreciate my journey. I didn't for a while, but I do now. Um, and, you know, times like these when you're sitting around just doing nothing particularly and you're just sort of hovering and thinking about where you've been and where you're about to go, it can do nothing but make you feel grateful for life and what it's given you. 
you know, I'm, I'm pretty positive there's nothing else I could have ever done in my life. I could never have been a plumber um, or a bus driver. I'd love to have been a bus driver, actually. But, um, but yeah, I just who I am and and it's been a, a wonderful trip I get that sense with Paul as well I think his journey has always been cut out for him it's always been you know he's always slick you know he's always in GQ he looks great for his age he's sort of he's well pickled you know he looks after himself <laughs> and I think that's a really wonderful thing there's also that obviously that understanding of when to knock the chaos on the head and it's time to move on. But also with the band that he's got, it seems that he's very good at shaking things up and bringing in new members and deciding when it's time to to move into the next iteration of the Paul Weller band, if you like, or the, the, the story. Constantly working with different artists, which keeps it fresh as well. And I know that for me, again, the parallels with Squeeze, it's very similar and not always for your own choice. I know with the amount of bass players you got through, for instance, that, that keeps it fresh, doesn't it? So that, that heart of Squeeze, it's obviously you and Glenn, but the rest so the lineup is is very much moving at times, isn't it? I think it's right to do that. I think it's good to have a lineup change from time to time. And we've been with the same musicians now for quite a long time, fifteen years possibly, and um, they're absolutely brilliant. And, you know, they, they they deliver squeeze in a fantastic way. And we have had bass players come and go. In fact, we've shared a bass player with Paul, with Yolanda Charles, mm. of course. Um, and that's always. A bit tricky because it's a very important part of the song, having a great bass playing lines that Glenn creates. So it's been, that makes us a bit, a bit shaky, I think, sometimes. But yeah, I think it's, I think I, I very much admire the way Paul changes things around. I think it's important. To me, I'm guessing when would it be six, six, seven years ago when you came back for third or fourth time as Squeeze, I suppose it would be. Back to where you you belong to me, you seem much happier. You're collaborating in a different way with Glenn from what I can understand from, from what you've written. And you come up with this album, From the Cradle to the Grave, which is driven by Danny Baker's sitcom based on his memoirs. And then more recently, the in the last, what, four years ago, The Knowledge. Was there pressure on you when you came back to be able to work together to produce some great work again? How much of that new work are you, are you measuring up against the legacy? There was no pressure and there is no pressure, really. I mean, Cradle to the Grave, there was pressure in so far as there was a TV show to land the songs on. So we had to get them ready in time. And because we hadn't written as a partnership for over 15 years, we had to kind of learn how to be in each other's company. And that took some some doing. It took some time. And then when we did the knowledge, it was like an extension of, in a way of the Cradle to the Grave album, but not not quite as successful, I don't think. Um, it didn't have the spark that Cradle to the Grave had, although it has some fantastic songs on it, I have to say. So we're still young as songwriters. We've still got a lot to learn. But our legacy, as you say, the music that we've written over the past 47 years um, still needs looking after. And there's a couple of other questions I wanted to ask you around writing lyrics, if that's all right. So one was, I was talking about the Style Council with a couple of guests and how Paul would bring in these amazingly well-written songs for them to work on in terms of the music and the sound and collaborating on. But he'd pretty much bring in these these finished lyrics and the reaction to these incredible lyrics that he was writing. Do you know how Glenn has felt about you sending because at one point you were sending these in the post presumably I'm guessing that's not how it works now is it, is it an email job but how Glenn would feel about receiving these incredible lyrics from you and having this material to, to work with must have, must have been amazing and very similar to Paul I would imagine when he's bringing this stuff to his band too he's pretty secretive about it really he's and he works at a different pace to me he, he doesn't like to sort of just 
open the envelope and read all the words. He kind of takes his time, and which is perfect for him. And uh, that's the way that he works. So he'll put one lyric up on the piano or get in front of him and he'll give it a go and see what happens. So, you know, for me, sometimes my job is done like months before we finish a record, months before, you know, like if I did deliver the lyrics in January, we might not get everything done until September, but I've done everything that I can possibly do apart from chip in. I think we have a unique way of working, um, which has grown over the years. Many of the gaps of Squeeze, you've been doing solo material too. And I know that a lot of those are collaborations as well, but is there a different way of you writing in when you're writing with a tune in mind as well as writing the lyrics, which is different to Squeeze? Um, well, I'm always writing with a tune in mind. Oh, are you? Um, okay. Uh, but I never tell Glenn what tune it is. <laughs> um, do, do they occasionally ever collide or not really? No, they don't. <laughs> but, um, you know, so it, it's... Whoever I'm writing for, there's always a tune in my head. Oh, wow. Um, but it's, I, I just keep that to myself. <laughs> there must have been times where you're like, oh, that's not the tune I had. The one, the one in my head was much better. No, it's just really, it's just really for the basic foundation of the lyric itself, for the rhythm, for the scanning. I love that. I didn't realise that. Um, this has been so lovely, Chris. I really appreciate your time. There's, Thank there's, you. You mentioned about the uh, the jam supporting you on tour. I can't remember if you remember writing this. At the very least, I remember experiencing this. But page 102, you mentioned the jam supporting you at the marquee. Can you remember the story about the microphones? Yeah, Paul's dad um, accused us of nicking his mic stands and the microphones, which we didn't do, which is... I am a bit of a tea leaf, and I would have nicked them back in the day but I wouldn't have nicked them from the jam because they were so brilliant. <laughs> you know, if it had been a shit band, then, yeah, I would have nicked them. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I was accused of doing something that I clearly didn't do. <laughs> uh, Chris, this has been so lovely. Thank Two you. final questions then. You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the jam, the style council or solo. Which one is it going to be? Um... What's the new one called? There's one that's literally come out today called Glad Times. The one that looks sounds a bit Iggy Pop. Yeah, um, that one, yeah. Yeah, Love. Cosmic Fringes. Yeah. Yeah. What about Thank that you. one? Is that because just because it's new and you haven't heard it before and it's... Yeah, yeah. Always moving forward. I love it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, and the uh, purpose of this podcast is also to be able to secure a chat with Paul that wraps up the series. If there's any question I should ask, what should I tackle him about? Or a topic, anything that you think I should cover off with him? Contraception, I would talk to him about. <laughs> Brilliant. I shall leave that there. <laughs> Right. See you soon. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dan. See you. Bye. Care. Bye. That was brilliant. My thanks once again to Chris Difford. Check out his fabulous solo work and that of Squeeze. I can't recommend enough. Next week, we head back to the start of Paul's solo career. My guest is bass player Paul Francis. Part of the Paul Weller movement back in 1990, we'll hear all about those early days of Paul after the end of the Style Council. Don't forget to share this episode on social media. You can find us on Twitter at WellerFanPod or on Facebook and Instagram. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.